0: Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at DTCpod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to Trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG Organic Creative. Use the code DTCpod10 for 10% off your next content purchase. As a DTC brand, you need real-time financial visibility to save money and make better decisions. Waiting for books from slow and expensive bookkeepers that don't get e-commerce is slowing you down. Trusted by hundreds of brands, Final Loop is a real-time accounting service built by D2C founders for D2C founders. Try Final Loop completely free, no credit card required. Just visit finalloop.com slash D2CPod and get 14 days free and a two-month P&L within 24 hours with all the e data and breakdowns you need to crush it. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Sydney Sykes, who's a partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners. So Sydney, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, your career up until today, and how you got involved with Lightspeed and what your focus is there.
1: So great to be here. I'm so excited about uh, the direct consumer space, e-com in general, and so I always love having these conversations. Um, In terms of my background, I actually... Started out in university, Uh, I was a psych major, and I was always thinking a lot about uh, why people make certain decisions. I was was actually really interested in going into commerce or CPG in general. Uh, But at that same time, I was hearing about startups like Uber and Snapchat, all these really exciting consumer startups um, that made me get interested in the VC space. And so ended up uh, going into venture out of undergrad, um, was at NEA for a few years doing Early consumer investing, and I was there when we invested in Casper, Masterclass, uh, a bunch of other direct consumer startups. Some of which did incredibly well, and some of which uh, did less well. And so, got to see up close the the failures and successes of some really incredible companies. Uh, ended up wanting to go experience the commerce and consumer side of things for myself. Um, went to Dolls Kill uh, for a while. Started out as inventory planner there, uh, eventually worked on growth and strategy for most of our native brands. Um, and it was incredible time to be there. I was there through the pandemic. I was there through, uh, a lot of social activism around black lives matter. And was just generally really taking a firsthand role in a lot of impactful changes in commerce, which I loved. Um, during this time, I was also investing. I was doing some angel investing. I started doing some scout investing for Lightspeed, which basically means investing on behalf of the firm in really early companies. Um, but basically was getting getting closer to BC again. Um, I was also running a nonprofit focused on increasing diversity in venture capital. Um, and all of those things kind of pulled me back towards, towards venture. Um, and so I joined... Lightspeed. Once I had finished business school, really to focus on commerce, future shopping, and e-commerce enablement uh, for early stage companies, and and that's where I focus today. So excited to have this conversation about the things I'm thinking about every day.
0: No, oh, that's re- that's really cool in terms of the background, especially having experience not only on the VC side, but you know, getting to spend so much time thinking about a really exciting market niche, right? Like Ramon and I spend so much time in the commerce creator sort of world. And, um, you know, a lot of times you'll talk to VCs and some are like really broad, some focus in SaaS, some co- focus in different things. So getting one that really is focused in on, uh, on the consumer commerce spaces is really, really fun. So why don't you take us back to, um, you know, you said you had worked before at NEA and you had been overseeing some of these like major commerce brands that we know today, right? Like, what was the experience like? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the landscape back then? What was working and what's kind of changed since then in terms of the model?
1: Yeah, it was an interesting time. It was kind of the heyday of investing in direct-to-consumer brands. There have been a few successful brands, but we were also starting to see more and more of these areas get um, come online. So, for example, I remember when Casper came in to pitch, they were talking about how most People were buying mattresses by going into physical stores, these retail locations that were two thousand square feet. And so, if you brought the um, if you brought the uh, the the mattress online, if you sold mattresses online, you could save so much money and actually make incredible margins on these businesses. Um, and that business also went through the challenge of a bunch of competitors popping up because that's one of the big things about e-commerce is if you have the idea and you have the manufacturing machine there's a chance that down the line other competitors will be able to uh, offer a similar or maybe even better product Um, and so going through the challenges of how defensible is a brand was also something that was coming up during that time and so when we were looking at um, investments back in that day we were looking at not just the metrics but also the brand also the perseverance and grit of the founder, also the space where there incumbents that could be um, competed against, that could be dominated, um, it was an area with a lot of opportunity. I'd say it's changed a little bit in the years since then for a couple of reasons. We've all seen the rise in customer acquisition costs. That means it's harder than ever to find your customers and market to them efficiently, um, We've also seen the rise of more and more businesses. So there's just been, it's been easier and easier to start an e-commerce business. So the space is more saturated. So now you can't just start with a brand. You need to have traction. You need to have unique demand access. Um, You need to have unique distribution. Um, But on the other hand, we've also seen that Shopify is making it easier and easier for these smaller businesses to come online. And also an opportunity to build out that Shopify app ecosystem and that e-commerce enablement, which is where I've been focusing a lot as an area where there is some opportunity to fill in white space. Um, So that's kind of walking us through the whole trajectory of this space and how it's changed depending on the ease of starting a business, the cost of customer acquisition, and prevalence of um, new businesses and brands.
2: I wonder if there are cycles here in where you know then because it was also the era of hey not only do we have the discovery that if we package these mattresses and ship them it's that there's also um opportunity to acquire customers so this new channel which is Facebook ads and it's insanely cheap to do it and so I wonder if there are cycles where you know let's say now some companies are finding unique modes and distribution through native content through TikTok. And so as social commerce evolves, then there's other apps that they're tapping into. And so I wonder if there are these cycles where, you know, do you think there will be a point to where the DTC brands could come back to a cycle where like it makes financial sense or will we look back and say, we learned from this, not every distribution channel is going to last forever. Um, and that's just the nature of commerce um, from the brand's perspective, right? They always have to be looking for that new, um, untapped channel.
1: I think you're totally right. There's a couple really interesting articles. One is like the, the law of shitty click-through rates. There's another article about like the effectiveness of email marketing. Basically, we've just seen over time that like two things happen. One, newness is always effective. Email marketing was super effective until we all got a thousand emails a day. And TikTok was incredibly effective the first time around. It's starting to lose some of its effectiveness. Kim Kardashian. And SMS. SMS was so effective. Uh, And I think we're going to see that with more and more products. We might see it with video. We might see it with, um, you know, we saw it with apps, like companies having their own apps. Uh, And so I think you need to, one, don't. Don't shit on newness, like newness works. But also there's going to be this law that customer acquisition costs will increase over time until there's the next big thing. And so right now I'm spending a lot of time thinking about how do we enable discovery? Is there a new type of platform that could help with discovery the way that TikTok helped with discovery? Is there a new way that we want to engage with shopping that makes it fun and exciting and hopefully for a longer period of time? So that you don't have this effectiveness drop off once people learn how to hack the new trick.
2: Yeah, I I, I recently saw um, you know JetBlue is having this program where people are putting brands on the flights and everything, and and that's just another form of discovery. But it makes me think I I want social commerce to evolve more to the point that you know th- there just are more forms of discovery. I, you know we've had a bunch of brands on the podcast, and GoPuff is. A great way for brands that are starting to look into discovery um so that makes complete sense i i am curious more on your background too um on on black vc specifically i did some research and saw that you were involved after was that after nea or before nea and and what was that specifically
1: i started black vc in my first or second year at nea basically i was a black investor looking for a community of other black investors looking to figure out what it meant to be successful in this industry as a minority. And there weren't a ton of people who looked like me. I think 90 percent or over 90 percent of VC firms didn't have a single black investor. Uh, And so just imagine most of the rooms you're walking into. You're not really seeing anyone who looks like you. So Black VC was an attempt to find a community um, of other black investors to help each other succeed. Um, over time, there ended up being a lot of demand from the Black investor community as well as aspiring Black investors. And so we launched programs to support people getting into venture. Uh, we launched communities across the U.S. to help Black investors find local community. Um, and it's an organization that's really helped me find my place in venture, um, as well as hopefully give back a bit to, to others who could be great investors down the line.
0: Sydney, so... The other question that I had about um when you were running uh things over at Black VC is like what were, you know, what were the operations there? What were you guys focused on in terms of like from an investment standpoint as well? Were you still really focused at the intersection of commerce and enablement or were you guys um focused on different sorts of companies?
1: Yeah, Black VC is a um basically an advocacy advocacy and community focused nonprofit. So we didn't do any investing at the time that being said a lot of our community members were very active angels and active investors and so one of the great things they did is some of our community members some of our program participants actually launched an investment brunch where they'd bring in um diverse founders every sunday to pitch the group and actually a lot of investments came out of that so it ended up being a pretty diverse network of investors uh angels and then also founders through those investments
2: got it okay so so that being said you know what was the goal and and what do you think is the current state of diversity in the industry and and what do you think the future holds there you know i'm i'm hispanic uh you know um we we worked with black ambition and so um i haven't been in this industry as long as you have so i'm curious like what would the goal was how have we improved and and what does the future hold there
1: for me the overall goal for for Black VC and for venture has always been reaching parity with what the U.S. looks like. I think stats are about 3% of investors are Black. When you look at funds, I think it's less than 1% of funding goes to Black um, entrepreneurs. The numbers are as bad for Latinx um, uh, entrepreneurs. So, you know, long term, I'd really love to reach a world where venture capital looks like the diversity of the US and the companies we invest in look like the diversity of the US. That's not where we're at at all. Um, And so we have a short term goal of reaching um, oh my gosh, I'm going to forget. So we can just crop this out. I'm forgetting it. But um, you know, overall, the organization is still really focused on supporting existing Black investors and aspiring Black investors and helping them reach the point where they don't feel otherwise where they feel they can bring their full investing perspective to the table. Now, the data venture is not great, I would say. Even if you look at gender parity, I think it's 12% of inv- investors are women. That's, that's crazy low. Um, and even if these numbers are improving, I think we still need to see more pressure from limited partners. We need to see more pressure from the investors at the top because it's also about... Uh, it's about the business the business approach to this as well. Venture capital is about having a diversified asset class. And if you're not representing most of the U.S., then you're going to be missing great investments and you're not going to have a diversified portfolio. You
0: know, I think it's so important. And the other thing that, um, you know, immediately kind of comes to mind is the fact that, is like, how do you balance the two, right? Because I think as a VC, like you're saying, you're reporting to LPs, you guys have a mandate to, you know, find the best companies out there and be able to return capital. So on one hand, you know, you want to be able to be, you want to have diversity where you're able to invest in everyone, bring everyone up. But at the same time, you also have to, uh, you have to make money. So it was the kind of the point of Black VC as well to also help cultivate from an operational perspective and a network perspective, helping other people have the resources to be able to like understand what it takes to, raise around what it takes to start a company like what what is the state on that side of being able to also cultivate the talent so people have the resources and the know-how to be able to execute because i think we see it in commerce as well right there's a lot of founders that are either women female founders or or are of minority group founders who are looking to raise they want to raise they're talking to vcs they have great resources out there but what what are some of the ways that you see in balancing those two
1: Well, I don't think there's an either or between diversity and good returns. And I think commerce is a great example of that. Women have most of the purchasing power in the US. And I think women are are also one of the dominant groups starting uh, starting companies in the commerce space as well. Um, And so to say like, okay, we're not going to have any investors who are women, but we're still going to be able to identify, meet, and relate to these female-founded companies every time, that seems a little ridiculous to me. I think if you don't have, one, the network, and two, a representation of the perspective of the founders you're trying to reach, you're going to have a hard time reaching them. And so I think the, the business argument seems fairly, fairly obvious to me. Um, when you look at a firm, for example, that doesn't have coverage in fintech, And then there's two or three huge fintech exits. That firm is probably going to hire a fintech investor. Um, And we just haven't seen the same response with um, with founders of of color or underrepresented minorities. Um, I think we're starting to see it, especially as we've seen a few more unicorns coming from uh, black and brown entrepreneurs and from women. But it's been a slower urgency than what we saw around crypto or gen AI. So I don't know. Hopefully that perspective rings true to some investors.
0: No, absolutely. And and what about on the on the founder side, right? I think one question that you'll see a lot of times from from founders of different companies, whether you're building a, a commerce company, a tech company, is like, you know, how do how do I connect with venture capitalists? How do like what what resources do I have a founder to if I am Whatever my disposition is, I could, do you have any advice for founders to better get connected with VC or really, you know, put their best foot forward to be able to raise around if that's the, if that's the direction that they want to go and they feel like they don't have the resources to do so?
1: Yes, I think there's a few different approaches. One, I would always reach out to investors who have hopefully a noted interest in what you're you're investing in so instead of reaching out to say any given founder of benchmark what about reaching out to the vc firm that specifically focuses on consumer marketplaces and has experience investing in companies like yours i think you're going to have a better shot at relating to that that investor than um maybe larger firm higher profile investors i think mean, that's one approach I think the second is frankly like networks are always going to be important adventure and so you can get an introduction through a friend of a friend like sadly that that still helps a lot um and hopefully with linkedin that's easier than ever and then i think the third thing that i wouldn't sleep on is there are some really incredible incubators and accelerators out there of course there's the yc's of the world but also there's tech stars also sephora has a great um uh, accelerator also there's Um, A bunch of smaller ones in in different communities. I know LA has a few of them. I also know that um, Chicago and Tulsa and all these other local communities have great accelerators that can help you get to that first bit of traction. And then the pitch is a lot easier. It's harder to pitch an idea. It's a lot easier to pitch traction and great numbers and a great business idea. Um, But I I would start with that. And also I think using whatever founder network you have just to share ideas and see what's working with other founders who look like what, what metrics resonated with the VCs they talk to. But, But I do think even in such a network driven industry, I think there's a lot of ways to reach investors and there's a lot of ways to get funded.
2: And, and, you know, I think to summarize, the real answer is that there is like, you have to have the network and there is no shortcut to building the network. It takes years and years. It's the, it's the network that overnight, gives you the access, but that you look back and it was the person that you knew through this other person that you met at an event that wasn't even about startups, you know, five, 10 years ago, it takes that long of a period. And then you actually doing, you know, making a name for yourself, just working and, and making numbers as, as good as possible. Um, and so, you know, I want to talk more about commerce, but before we do so in in a more direct question, what. Are some of the mistakes that you see that founders do when trying to get in the door um you know is there such thing as the right timing to approach um like what are some of the most common mistakes that founders shouldn't make when when trying to approach a vc firm
1: yeah it's a great question and definitely see mistakes every day uh and and no one's gonna be perfect a few things come to mind one reaching out to investors who aren't going to be a fit for you. So I focus on commerce, e-commerce enablement. If you reach out to me about an infrastructure app focused on, I don't know, oil rings or something, I'm not going to be as helpful as someone else could be. Um, I think another mistake I see is frankly defensiveness. So a lot of times I find when I'm asking a founder questions because I'm really trying to understand the space and I feel like they're just trying to convince me. Like they're not going to open up the door to say, hmm, you know, maybe that is a weakness. There is second to say, it's not a weakness. I think what i see incredible founders do is say, actually, I've thought about that, and that has been a risk for other companies, but here's how I'm thinking about um, getting around that. Or maybe even saying, you know, that is a risk for companies, and that's part of why you're able to build such a great moat if you figure this out. Um, and I think the last thing that can be a mistake is thinking that, just because you have a good business, that that means you have a good venture business. Most companies probably aren't a fit for venture capital. There are a lot of businesses that can grow at a really great, steady pace through maybe a a bit of loans or maybe even through just bootstrapping. Um, And frankly, venture capital funding will just take away some of their ownership of the company and not necessarily help with growth. So I think it's really important for founders to reflect on why they think venture is the right way to build a company because there has been a ton of incredible bootstrapped companies. I would argue that in the history of the U S there's probably been more incredible bootstrapped companies than there have been venture backed companies, but venture's just a little bit hotter of a moment right now.
0: Yeah. And, and that's something I want to follow up on, especially as it pertains to commerce, right? Because I think you see in commerce, uh, it's it's one of those industries where the cost of capital to get started there's there's a lot of investment required up front a lot of the times sure now there's more tools to do lower kind of pos and you can get set up on shopify pretty easily but traditionally it's a capital intensive business with uh with margins that aren't the same as like selling software right so um over the last couple years we've seen kind of swings back and forth where these businesses like you were saying uh, casper or Warby Parker, some of these are raising a whole bunch of venture money and scaling super fast uh, in in similar terms to the way uh, a traditional VC companies would scale. How do you see things playing out now for, for commerce sort of companies who have raised venture? What's the landscape at the brand level look like? What are investors saying? What are they looking for? What do they want to invest in? And and yeah, just just give us kind of your bird's eye view on on that whole side of the picture.
1: Yeah, there's a couple reasons to make a BC investment. One is that um, there's some sort of, the company has some sort of unique dis- distribution that will create a moat. Another is that the company has some sort of unique demand. Maybe they're a celebrity back company or influencer back company, and so on. there's some demand bought in, um, or there's some sort of technological moat. In each of these cases, there's something that enables the company to, to beat out the competition and have an unfair advantage. Um, there was a point in time where there were fewer businesses online, and also there was a huge advantage just through being able to target customers really effectively through Facebook and and uh, Google and content. That advantage has started to die off. Um, and so we've seen more investments in Brands that have some sort of demand advantage. Uh, at Lightspeed, we invested in House Labs, and every time Lady Gaga, it's her uh, her beauty brand, every time Lady Gaga posts on Instagram, that's like a free ad. You know, that's not an advantage that every brand can have. And so, if you're a, a small business going up against um, House Labs. It's going to be a little bit tougher to compete. And so, we've seen. a a larger number of VCs leaning away toward traditional bootstrapped brands and moving more toward either e-commerce enablement companies or companies with some other sort of advantage that isn't just around um, marketing and performance marketing. Um, I do still think that there's an opportunity for brands that figure out how to have a really unique distribution or, some other moat to come in and do really well. In more recent years, we've seen uh, Manjuri and Aloe and and some other brands do really well, even in spite of some of the struggles with with CAC and they're competing against uh, bigger companies and doing really well. It's just harder today than it was five or ten years ago to go from zero to to something big.
0: And in VC, what are the benchmarks uh, for Commerce sort of brands that might be starting up today right i know it's there are still funds out there that are seeding you know commerce companies that are getting started so could you speak to it all in terms of like what the benchmarks are what the targets or expectations are if you are going the venture route and if you are at the brand level what what's to be expected of you
1: of course yeah of course there's still investment here um and the benchmarks vary. I'd say the number one thing that I look at is the ratio of customer lifetime value to customer acquisition cost. And basically that accounts for everything from retention to average order value to the cost to acquire customer. Um, and so I find it to be a really useful metric. Um, I like to see a, a sort of three year customer lifetime value about three to five times larger than the customer acquisition cost. And of course, like just because you hit that perfect metric doesn't mean that you're going to be the best investment for me. And if you don't hit those targets, it also might not mean that you're automatically disqualified. There's a lot of things that make a business interesting that have to do with the idea and the vision for the future and the founder um, that are that go beyond metrics. But yeah, I pay a ton of attention to customer lifetime value, a ton of attention to CAC. But basically it's just a shorthand for if I put a dollar in, how many dollars will I get out down the line?
0: Awesome. And then if we started to think about the other side of things, because I know you spend a lot of time in enablement, in macro trends going on, in the future of shopping, and kind of what we alluded to earlier in the conversation is if you're a brand and you have some sort of first mover advantage, whether it's a whether it's a new platforms coming out, you're the first one to Facebook, you're the first to TikTok, et cetera, you will have an advantage to grow faster. Um, So I think what would be awesome in this conversation is if you could just give us a little bit of what you're seeing in the enablement space, what you're seeing from future of commerce players and where brands might keep an eye out for cool opportunities that are popping up to be able to tap into as a like you said, a distribution and leverage play?
1: I, I think this is one of the most exciting times for brands because of of enablement tools. Uh, even if you get outside of just the fact that you have the Shopify app ecosystem and there's tools to do it, kind of anything under the sun, there's also some incredible stuff coming out with generative AI. Um, all of the product description pages that were being written manually, those could now be done with generative AI. Um, if we look a few years down the line, we might even be able to see um, visual asset on websites is not just created through generative AI, but also maybe personalized and customized to the, um, to the customer. So I think we're seeing a lot of interesting technologies coming out. Um, I care a lot about anything that optimizes e-commerce. So how do you get inventory? to a really great level. I mean, I was an inventory planner. My literal job was to make sure that we had the right inventory levels and still like a good self-driven commerce could be 60, 70%. That's a lot of inventory that's going to waste, especially in retail and apparel. Um, But I think there's ways through AI and data and also just like the power of these ecosystems on the web to optimize that, to optimize pricing. Um, And then this conversation we're having around discovery, I don't think anyone's mastered it yet. But like, even if you look at TikTok, every brand I'm talking to has said that TikTok is the most effective way for them to reach their customers right now. And that platform wasn't available a few years ago. Um, So I think there could be even more discovery platforms that are even more focused on shopping and the customer experience in the next couple of years. I'm super excited to see those those coming to the forefront.
2: Yeah, there's there's some interesting ones popping up. Like well, I think Whatnot is one of the apps that is just, you know, sort of doing what we thought wouldn't happen. This, you know, I, we almost wrote off live shopping. Like that's just, you know, there's cultural barriers from what you see in China versus consumer behavior in U.S. and it just might not happen here. But I think Whatnot has sort of defied the odds and and um, is, is being successful. And I wish for that future to where we have more options for distribution in commerce. It's just way too limited in the hands of Facebook, Instagram, and then TikTok, you know, we're seeing the same with our brands, but we're having our brands come back to us and say, TikTok, we know it's working, but we just don't know what's going to work. Like it's such a throwing spaghetti at the wall with content. And then they're saying, well, now I have to produce so much content that it's cost me the same as like, you know, producing like spending on ads. Um, brands are spending 20000 50000 a month on, on producing um, this type of content. So it's interesting how you laid it out in the sense that all of the f- future of tools, like there's the front end facing stuff. And then there's the back end for like optimization of operations, inventory generating content etc and then the front and facing stuff of the conversions the visual landscape of the websites um the interaction the personalized stuff so um do you guys look at any of those you know is there a specific lean that you have towards be giving your background in inventory um you know are you focusing on anything specific between all of those areas
1: I'm sort of torn about it. It's it's almost like two different types of investment. Cause if you if you talk about the back end side of things, you can really just look at the numbers. You can say, okay, your average brand is losing 30% of their inventory, or they're selling out of this percent of their products, or you know, they're undercharging. You can actually do the math and really get to an answer there. Um, and you can quantify what the business opportunity is. On the front end, it's totally limitless. Like every social platform, TikTok, um, Snapchat, they have this unbounded opportunity to change the way that we interact with each other, that we interact with products, that we interact with commerce. Um, But a lot of them go to zero. There's a lot of social apps. There's a lot of live stream shopping companies. There's a lot of uh, social commerce companies that none of us have ever heard about. Because it's so hard to get it right. And so I don't think we have a lean one way or another. Um, I think you need to invest in both because if you miss the big one, you know, you're going to regret it. But if you don't do the back end stuff, you're also missing really great
2: opportunities. It's like be real, like they blew up and now nobody's uh, basically uh, using it so what do you think are the 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 future trends um for where founders should be two steps like founders of uh their DTC brands or consumer brands where should they be looking today to be two steps ahead of of the future when it comes to distribution outside of and, and TikTok might be like it might just be native content and somehow you know we have seen brands now starting podcasts um a lot of brands are starting podcasts so um, would you say that's one of the areas or, or what are some of the areas I'd sort of answered my <laughs> the question <laughs> I guess I
1: yeah
2: I guess I wanted to throw in my own opinion that I just think native content is a really good way and and it goes really broad right like native content it's not it's not just necessarily tiktok or visual content but even audio form content it's even texting your community um and and you know, spreading the tone of, of what your company stands for through messaging. Um, so, you know, I, I guess that's very biased of having a podcast and coming from a podcast. So I'm more curious on your take.
1: No, I'm with you on content. Um, I think we can't forget about search engine optimization, especially in an era where there is kind of unlimited content. And also, customers today are much less brand-driven, much more action-driven, I think, than they ever were before. And so you see customers searching searching TikTok, but also searching Google, you know, what is the best uh, sleep mask? What is the best uh, travel destination in Europe? Something like that. They're looking for this content, and they want the full information. They also want to know the founders. So I think content is still going to be king. And even as we move into an era where it's easier and easier to create content, I think that's still going to be important. I also keep talking about this generative AI stuff. I still think it's huge. Uh, I've talked to a lot of of brand founders who are um, doing their product pages with generative AI. And so they're already using it. And I think we're going to move towards a future where there can be so much more personalization. You can have these emails going out to your customers that recognize what was uh what was the last thing they bought, and you know what group do they fall into, and what kind of language will they respond to? So I still think that's huge. Um, I also think we need to figure out how to create authenticity. Uh, TikTok has really done that, but we're starting to move to a world where it's so dominated by influencers that there also needs to be a next level that creates that feeling of, discovery and personalization and intimacy um, because people still want to feel like you're talking just to them so it all it also a lot of that revolves around content i still think huge, just aided by technology i'm glad you
2: brought up seo because a lot of people hear seo and think google but youtube is a massive seo engine where you just in perpetuity continue to stack up traffic and people think you know instagram video they could they put it in the same bracket as youtube or and it's like you the benefit of seo is so massive it compounds over time and and tiktok works that way too people search for stuff um it serves you the personalized content for that specific even within the podcast we test with with keywords and people find their podcast through specific um keywords so yeah i i do i do um and I forgot the other part that you just mentioned the second layer. Well, I'll I'll piggyback off there. I think the
0: in all we're seeing with jet in generative AI, in the number of stores that are out there, in the number of tools and the number of destinations, I think curation becomes so important in the lens of all that stuff going on. So I think curators, especially when it comes to commerce and this sort of stuff are gonna be You know that's one of the main superpowers because there's going to be so much noise everyone is going to be spamming like their pages with more variations and creating all all sorts of content and as the barriers to creating content come down and there's more content then curation obviously becomes more important so that's definitely a trend that that i'm keeping an eye on um the other trend that i'd like to talk about and get your take on sydney is the circular stuff uh what kind of stuff have you seen in terms of circular fashion i know that for a while everyone was about fast fashion, but with people wanting to be more sustainable, wanting more unique things, like what are you seeing in that landscape?
1: Yeah, circular fashion continues to keep growing. I was looking at some data a little while ago on um, the sizing of the you know, resale market, and every year it keeps getting uh, adjusted for, for a larger, larger, and larger potential market. We invested in a company called Archive. Which does white label resale platforms for brands. And so basically, if you go on the North Faces website or MML Forest website, you'll see that they now have their own resale section. And it's like just showing that brands are also catching on to how big this is going to be. Um, I, I think the challenge we've always seen with resale, when you look at companies like Poshmark, look at the real, real, any of these peer to peer platforms, they're really difficult shopping experiences. Um, and that's, that's what's great about Archive is they're able to, to actually make a branded and, and high quality experience. But I also think we're gonna have these, these resale sites that are peer-to-peer are gonna continue to exist, but they need to figure out a discovery method again. They need to figure out a solution that enables customers to really want to engage in that experience. Hopefully some of this data um, and these AI tools will be able to tag Um, products better so that you can actually have a more searchable or discoverable experience. Um, Another thing that I think is interesting is you mentioned circularity. That's the idea that it's always coming around. You're not just buying something for the first time and making a decision about resale later. You're buying something with the idea in mind that you're going to resell it. This product is going to live forever. Um, And so I can see a lot more brands and companies starting with resale as part of their objective for the long run of the company. Uh, there, there's one company I talked to, one brand I talked to a while ago that said, I asked them, what do you think about resale? Like, do you think it's cannibalizing your revenue?'" And they said, if I can sell a product two or three or four times, I would sell a product two or three or four times. It's not cannibalization if I'm bringing it back in-house. Um, so I think circularity is another incredible way to get around the inefficiencies of shopping.
0: No, a hundred percent. And I've seen it as well. uh, You know, stores that are launching their own branded circular platforms. You've got platforms that are coming up on the peer-to-peer side as well, in addition to like the popular ones like Depop and other ones like that. So I think it's, I think it's a really interesting space. I think the big constraint there and what people have to think about is because there's so many costs that are involved with this, right? Like, for specific brands that sell products where they're actually being being able to make margin by inventorying it um, and reselling it, like those are the products that lend themselves to it. There's certain products where, unfortunately, it's just cheaper for the brand to dispose of it and write it off than it is to reinventory it and sell it out. So I think on one side you'll see a couple more effective uh, inventory solutions popping up that maybe aren't maybe are more local driven instead of being like, oh, we're going to you know, have someone ship a product back to a warehouse, inventory it, and ship it out to a completely new person. And then I do think on the upper end of products, I do think there's a whole bunch of room to run, like you were saying, for brands to capture value out of um, more high-ticket price items.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're totally right. Of course, we probably will never see circularity in food, but um, there's other areas like maybe, maybe furniture, maybe home goods, will see a much longer circular life cycle. But I think either way, companies are thinking about their inventory in a smarter way, whether it's liquidation or um, circularity or uh, just trying to be smarter about the inventory predictions that they make. It's an area that's really important as customers are getting smarter about um, sustainability. You know,
2: furniture is one that I was thinking about that instantly popped up to my head just because every time I've had to buy it, it's just such a pain and, you know, brands... You know, I think I we I ordered um furniture the other day. It didn't have the legs. The company suggested like resending the whole thing or something just because of the legs, just because the pain. For I can't ship back. You know, the entire thing because of the cost of shipping. So, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And on that topic of, of um, and this topic we're talking about, I think you know, uh, Jupiter is a really interesting business to where Pharrell has, you know. Basically, uh the concept of Jupiter is he started out by selling his collectible items, but it now has turned into a platform where other celebrities and known people in jewelry, et cetera, are doing their own product drops. It's a marketplace with built in distribution. Um, and, and this is a deal that Lightspeed um, invested in. So I'm curious on on your point of view on the dynamics of, of Jupiter and how it applies to through this concept we're discussing
1: yeah it capitalizes on so many trends like circularity being one of them also price being smart or optimizing for pricing and inventory since it's an option model um also unique distribution given the celebrity angle you have that built-in demand um their their first drops or fraud's first drop sold out you know like what other ddc brought um to see companies have all of their products sell out in the first launch. It's it's super rare, um, but that's the model. the The model of circularity, the model of um, an auction model, really enables that sort of optimization. So I think we're going to see more businesses like that. But yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about uh, about Jupiter. It's one of those that's just super innovative.
0: Yeah. So Sydney, as we kind of wrap up here, would love to kind of. Get your final take on what you're really excited about this year coming up. If there's any spaces you're really looking at from an investment standpoint, any any type of trends that like, you know, you're you're really digging into at the moment. And then other than that, wh- um, why don't you also give out a shout out to like where our listeners can connect with you? You know, is it by email? Is it uh, LinkedIn? What's the easiest way to find you as well?
1: Yeah. Awesome. Um I'm really excited about anything to do with uh, inventory, circularity or inventory optimization. I'm really excited about anything to do with generative AI and, and content or generative AI and personalized web experiences. And I'm really excited about this challenge of discovery. We keep talking about it. There has to be more ways for people to discover brands and for brands to reach their customers. And I think in the next year, we're just going to see a lot of changes in commerce. So I'm hoping this is going to be a, a, a 23 year year for for commerce. Um, Would love to connect with anyone. Please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn, Sydney Sykes on LinkedIn. um, And then feel free to connect with me on Twitter as well. It's Sid underscore likes, L-Y-K-E-S.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. And we'll have to have you back on next year to recap the end of 2023 and what to expect for 24.
1: Yeah, let's see how wrong I am next year. I'm excited for that. All right,
0: thanks, Sydney. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from
2: every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.